Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic q and I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. The gallbladder is a small pear-shaped organ on the right side of the abdomen and sits just beneath the liver. It sometimes can become cancerous and when discovered early, there is a good chance for a cure. Unfortunately, however, most gallbladder cancers are discovered at a late stage and the prognosis can be poor. Cancer can also form in the bile ducts, which are the slender tubes that carry bile fluid. This type of cancer is called cholangiocarcinoma. February is gallbladder and bile duct cancer awareness month. And joining us to discuss this today is Dr. Kabir Modi, who is past co-chair of the hepatobiliary disease group at the Mayo Clinic Cancer Center. Welcome to the program, Dr. Modi. Thank you so much. Pleasure to, uh, to be here. So Dr. Modi, how common is this? Yeah, so, um, you know, cholangiocarcinoma, which uh, encompasses gallbladder cancer and bile duct cancer um, uh, uniformly is, um, is pretty uncommon. Um, you know, it represents only about 3% um, of GI cancers overall, um, but uh, is one of the few cancers that is uh, actually rising in incidence uh, globally, and including here in the United States. And so what causes it? So uh, this is caused by, you know, as with most cancers, you know, the bile ducts are these little slender tubes, as you said, um, uh, that start in the, um, in the liver and they, um, they migrate and uh, coalesce uh, as they go through the liver down into one single uh, bile duct that exits the liver. Um, and that bile duct goes um, and, uh, and empties into the um, small intestine, small bowel. And um, so the cholangiocarcinoma can occur anywhere along this. It, it occurs when cells, the cells that line these bile ducts called cholangiocytes, they develop changes in their genetic code, mutations uh, is another word for that, um, which change the instructions for how that cell uh, behaves and, and, and eventually uh, becomes cancerous when those cells uh, turn to growing too much. Uh, and basically what happens is it becomes a tumor within the bile duct. And then that tumor as it progresses will invade through the wall of the bile duct and into the liver, uh, which is why you know, many of these cancers, when we, when we do find them appear as a mass within the liver, but they're really coming from those cells that line the bile duct. And gallbladder cancer works similar. Uh, so from the lining of the gallbladder, these, these, uh, these cells turn cancerous and frequently um, once it, when they become more advanced will invade through the wall of the gallbladder and up into the liver where the gallbladder meets, uh, uh, meets the liver underneath. So are there genetic causes or are there certain behaviors that uh, may lead to an increased risk of these forms of cancer? Yeah, so there are some risk factors for cholangiocarcinoma. Um, many of them are shared between all forms of, of cholangiocarcinoma. Others seem to be more specific for different subtypes um, and maybe more important in some, more, some areas of the world versus the others. We know there's differencing, uh, different uh, uh, incidence rates and, and mortality rates around the globe with geographic um, uh, variations, um, uh, pro probably because of some environmental factor um, or perhaps different uh, genetic uh, etiologies. Um, but uh, 
in terms of risk, risk factors, uh, common ones would be, um, you know, uh, primary sclerosing cholangitis, which is a condition that um, causes uh, hardening and um, uh, um, uh, narrowing of the bile ducts and a lot of inflammation. Chronic liver disease, um, scarring of the liver, which can be caused by chronic hepatitis um, and, and other, other things, um, you know, frequently known as cirrhosis. Uh, older age, um, uh, diabetes, smoking, um, uh, obesity, um, and in and in some uh, areas of the world, um, there are uh, parasites which infect and live in the bile ducts that cause um, significant um, inflammation and changes there uh, that that lead to cholangiocarcinoma. Additionally, you know, gallstones, chronic gallstones, those can raise the risk for um, uh, cause chronic inflammation and raise the risk for, you know, perhaps bile or gallbladder cancer. And then some patients have what we call a colodocal cyst, which are chronic cysts that form in these bile ducts as they can in, in most any duct in the, in the body. And, and those um, can create an environment where cancer can develop as well. So, um, so yeah. And so when you say cirrhosis, you know, we think of cirrhosis as disease of the liver. And one of the common causes of that is alcohol. Have you yeah. seen a, a link between excessive alcohol consumption and the development of these cancers? Well, certainly, you know, chronic alcohol use can lead to chronic scarring of the liver and, and cirrhosis over time. I will say, um, when I say cirrhosis and, and chronic liver disease, you know, I think um, more, uh, more frequently we mean hepatitis B and C, chronic infection. Alcohol consumption can raise the risk for cholangiocarcinoma by about two to three times um, in, in retrospective looks. Um, uh, chronic hepatitis C and chronic hepatitis B, uh, maybe slightly more, um, maybe four or five times uh, the risk. Um, and, um, and then, uh, you know, one of the things that we haven't talked about a lot, but need to going forward because of its significantly rising incidence is um, NASH or uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which basically means fat accumulation in the liver, um, which is drastically growing in this and globally actually with the obesity epidemic and, and drastically growing as a cause for chronic liver disease. Uh, and it's certainly taking over as a, as a leading cause of um, not only cholangiocarcinoma, but um, uh, hepatocellular carcinoma, which is another type of liver cancer. So we're learning more and more about the coronavirus and how it affects different organ systems, for example, the heart, the lungs, the brain. Yeah. Have you seen it affect the liver? I don't know if I can answer that question. I haven't seen too many <laughs> coronavirus patients, but uh, uh, I have not seen, at least we don't really know whether, whether coronavirus can chronically affect the liver, right? Um, so if there was a, a situation where the, the virus causes changes that are, are ongoing chronically and cause chronic inflammation in the liver, then that would be a situation in which, um, you know, certainly it could raise your risk for uh, bile duct cancers. Okay. And so let's talk about the symptoms. What would a patient, how would they feel if they're developing this? Because we talked about the earlier the detection, the better chance of 
are the better prognosis. So what symptoms may a patient be experiencing? Yeah, so, I mean, I think, you know, um, part of the problem here is the liver, the liver is generally very resilient. And so um, a lot of patients won't have any symptoms um, when they have, you know, maybe very small tumors. Um, uh, most commonly, um, patients will have symptoms that relate to um, uh, obstruction of the bile ducts. And so um, those can happen, that can happen within the liver, it can happen outside the liver, the gallbladder for sure. So yellowing of the skin, otherwise known as jaundice or, or the whites of your eyes, um, a lot of itching, which is caused by a higher level of the bilirubin pigment in, in your blood. And that's very, um, you know, can irritate the skin. Uh, light, lighter colored stools, even white colored stools, otherwise known as clay colored stools, darkening of the urine. Um, uh, these are all symptoms of bilirubin backing up into the bloodstream. Otherwise, not pretty nonspecific symptoms, you know, more fatigue than normal, um, maybe some abdominal pain, uh, usually on the right side, although it could be anywhere, unintended weight loss. Um, in terms of gallbladder cancer, there's a, a you know, a percentage of patients who um, have a gallbladder tumor that's diagnosed just simply when they go in for, uh, to have their gallbladder removed, you know, they go in with symptoms of a gallbladder infection, uh, the surgeon goes in to take take that out, and um, pathologically you find a tumor, um, or, the, or the surgeon finds a tumor, um, and has to decide what to do at, at that point, and that's incidentally noted gallbladder cancer, so that can be particular to gallbladder cancer in itself. But So given how vague these symptoms are, what, what tests, how do you diagnose these uh, these conditions? Yeah, so a lot of patients will come in saying, you know, my doctor found that um, on my liver tests were elevated and you know this is something that's routinely done usually during a routine physical or uh, follow-up uh, uh, follow-up exam by your primary care physician perhaps and um, and then usually what we'll we'll do is um, you know get a cat scan right everyone who comes with a with abdominal pain to the emergency room usually gets a cat scan or, or an ultrasound uh, of the abdomen and, and that will show signs of a um, of a, of a mass in the liver. Um, a lot of times we'll get MRI, um, at least in our practice here. Uh, uh, MRIs can help um, to delineate, you know, uh, the tumor relationship to the bile ducts and, and critically relationship to blood vessels with all the blood vessels within the liver, which are important when we're trying to decide whether something can be taken out surgically or not. Um, it also will identify very small uh, you also want to identify uh, a very small, what we call satellite lesions, which happen very frequently with, with um, bile duct cancers. Um, so you can have like a, you know, a main tumor in the liver, but then there are satellite lesions elsewhere that we really want to know about. Um, frequently we see a, a main tumor and then we see satellite lesions elsewhere in the liver. And um, that's, we want to know that. Uh, that's important when we're trying to plan for different therapeutic options that we might have like surgery or, or other things. What, why is that important to diagnose these satellite lesions? Are you talking about metastases or just lesions yeah, elsewhere so they, in the liver? Considered, they, so they could be considered intra uh, uh, metastases within the liver mm -hmm. um, or there are other just new other separate tumors, right? So remember that 
bilateral cancer is, is developing in this environment that's pervasive throughout the liver, presumably, right? Chronic inflammation across the liver. And that, so that, that environment's, you know, present all over, all over the bile ducts. And so you could get separate tumors that develop, you know, all over the place or their, or their uh, intrahepatic metastases. Um, but it's important to know that because if you have, you know, if you see only one small tumor here, and you don't see the satellite tumor over here, and then you go and try and take this main tumor out surgically, for example, then you know certainly that that other tumor is going to start to grow after surgery, right? When you when we stop any adjuvant or post-operative therapy and that sort of thing, so that that person's at higher risk. We want to know the totality of the disease as best as possible. So that will include getting a CAT scan of the chest as well to make sure that there's no spread of the disease to the to the chest um, also. So Dr. Modi, you touched upon some of the treatments, surgical interventions. Can you, can you talk about the sort of spectrum of treatments that a patient could be expected to have? Sure. So surgery, is, I, surgery and taking out all the disease is the ideal way to treat this, treat this tumor. Um, and uh, really the only way um, to uh, offer the patient the potential for cure. And um, and as we said before, you know, it's, it's unfortunately not common enough that we, we find these situations um, where, where we see a tumor that can be taken out right away. Um, in addition to, uh, to, to surgical resection, um, uh, Mayo Clinic did uh, pioneer the, the advent of, of transplantation or liver transplant for particular uh, cholangiocarcinomas that occur where the bile ducts come down. And, called the hilum of the liver. So it's a particular location um, where you can get these tumors and uh, we, we have a, a pre-operative treatment where we apply chemotherapy and uh, focused radiation and then put patients on a maintenance chemotherapy that um, goes on until um, they get their liver transplant. And that's been life-changing for you know, a lot of patients with this particular bile duct cancer. Um, short of surgery, if surgery is not an option, um, then depending on, on where the disease is and how extensive it is, uh, uh, we, can, um, we can employ chemotherapy or systemic therapies, which we'll, I'm sure I'll probably talk about in a, in a couple of minutes. But um, in addition to that, um, radiation, uh, and there are different forms of radiation that, that we can do. We can do radiation that comes from outside the body, the traditional radiation that people hear about, or we can do radiation that is deployed on uh, little glass beads or, or resin uh, particles that we can deploy via catheter to the tumor directly um, and deliver high doses of radiation that way. So a lot of different things we can do, but um, sometimes that, that, that treatment leads to significant response that enables the patient to then go on to have a surgical a surgery uh, to take it out. And that's, that's fantastic when that happens. And sometimes it doesn't. And what about uh, proton beam? Has that had any role in the treatment of these uh, liver cancers or bile duct cancers? I think that's still that's still being ferreted out. Um, you know, there are pros and cons to proton, and I'm not a radiation oncologist, so I'm not going to wax poetic about that. But uh, you know, certainly there there could be a role, but it's something that's being more explored. Finding ways to, I think, the crux of of that question is really how can we find a way to get more radiation to that tumor 
um, uh, we, and, and spare normal liver. Uh, that's the ideal situation. And so we can do that potentially with, with proton. We can also do that with the, with the beads and very uh, particular mapping and dosing uh, that way as well. So let's talk about what Mayo Clinic is doing for treatments. You touched upon the surgical sort of nuances. Tell us yeah. what Mayo Clinic is leading in terms of treatments for these type of cancers. Well, so I think, you know, what we, what we try to do um, best here is um, a multidisciplinary approach with, with, uh, with faculty who are truly all in and focused on cholangiocarcinoma. And so we have surgeons who are, who are, who are that way. We have medical oncologists like myself who, who do, this, do the same thing. We have radiation oncologists who are focused on liver cancers. Um, and uh, and interventional radiologists too, who are passionate about this topic, and uh, and then on the also um, part of that team are folks in the lab, and we have uh, a number of labs at Mayo who that are doing groundbreaking research on you know the immune uh, immune environment of of uh, cholangiocarcinoma and bile duct tumors. Um, uh, targeted, uh, you know, sort of signaling pathways um, to take advantage of and the, and the true nitty gritty biology of how these tumors, uh, you know, grow and survive and how we can target that. Also, how can we model the disease better so that we can evaluate treatments better? And, and you know, we're doing work down here uh, across the enterprise on um, modeling it in specific tiny little, what we call micro cancers and being able to test different things that way and, and hopefully innovate treatments um, outside the patient before we get into a clinical trial. So given this sort of multidisciplinary in, innovative type of treatments, are you, if I was a patient and I wanted to get, for example, a second opinion or learn yeah. about the latest treatments, how does one go about doing that? Yeah, so I think in terms of um, bile duct cancers, as a patient, um, it's incredibly important to to have the opinion uh, or have the evaluation of a team that is that sees a lot of this disease of this disease because as we said it's not very common and you know um, many oncologists across the country um, will only see a couple over the course of their career and so um, I think it's incredibly important that patients you know at least get the opinion of someone who who sees a lot and can help to develop a treatment plan, um, hopefully an innovative one um, uh, that, um, that can be uh, employed as a team. And that includes their, their local um, oncology team for sure. Um, so there's lots of patients I see from you know, all over the country that I partner with, with their oncologists to deliver particular chemotherapy or targeted therapies. And you know, we have touch points uh, back and forth um, regarding repeat imaging and all sorts of stuff that uh, we can participate in. And I think that's good for patients to hear that they can have their treatment close to home, but still Absolutely. be connected with Mayo Clinic. Yeah. I mean, for there are lots of cancers and, and bile duct cancer is one of them where we know there are survival advantages if you have the involvement of a dedicated, specialized multidisciplinary team. And again, we're not trying to exclude anyone, right? We're just trying to offer our opinion and our expert, uh, 
recommendations because um, you know uh, cancer is moving so quickly now. There's so much happening in every disease that um, it's not possible for one you know oncologist who who does who treats everything a general oncologist to know the nitty gritty about every single one. And so we're just here to help and and provide you know that updated uh, uh, nuanced information uh, to each particular case in a personalized way. So Dr. Modi, with the, as you mentioned, the rapid developments that's happening, how has that changed the prognosis of this condition? Yeah, good question. So I think cholangiocarcinoma and liver cancers in general is one of these things where there's been a lot of development over the last couple of years. Um, and, uh, and, and it stems from biology and learning biology and genomics particularly. So a few years ago, um, several years ago when we were able to finally you know sequence the tumor genome and, and learn more about the biology of the disease from the genetics we learned a lot about cholangiac carcinoma so we learned primarily one of the biggest uh updates is that you know we learned that there are particular genetic alterations that drive these tumors and they differ uh between the different subtypes so intrahepatic cholangiac carcinoma differs from extrahepatic cholangiac carcinoma differs from gallbladder and the genetics differ among these three. And those genetic alterations have lend themselves to different new therapeutic options that patients did not have before. And uh, the pharmaceutical uh, industry has followed suit and, and done research and development and, and developed drugs that are now on the market and uh, much more to come um, to, to offer patients significant responses and uh, and um, disease control. Um, so it's really exciting. Um, that's one of the biggest things. So, you know, every patient with bile duct cancer should have their tumors genetically sequenced, um, which is e easily done now. And uh, so they know they know the genetic nature of their disease. So as we talk about variations and genetic variations, have you noticed uh, healthcare disparities and how that affects uh, the both the diagnosis and the treatment and prognosis of patients with liver or, or, or gallbladder cancer? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I, I think this, you know, the, the healthcare disparities that exist for pretty much cancer in general and cancer care, you know, apply to bile cancers as well. Um, in the United States, you know, the incidence of uh, cholangiac carcinoma is higher in older folks older than 45, 50 years old than it is for younger, although it's rising for younger folks. It's higher for Hispanic individuals compared to non-Hispanic individuals. And the five-year survival is worse for both of these populations. Um, there's worse overall survival rates for uh, reported for African-Americans, uh, American Indians and Alaska Native groups as well that we've, we've seen in, in large database studies. Uh, and, and like I said before, globally, there's geographic variations. And, and so there are differences in delivery of healthcare that can affect, uh, in general, that can affect um, the treatment that uh, folks of different um, groups might um, have access to. And, uh, and we're, we're definitely trying to change that by reaching out to, to the community and, and um, uh, providing um, services to, to them to, to get them the knowledge that they need to um, be their own patient advocates, hopefully, in um, asking for this stuff. So, for one example is you know the the genetic mutations and um, 
a number of uh, academic institutions, including ours, have you know worked with the Clinton Carcinoma Foundation, which is a patient advocacy group that's done a huge campaign on on how mutations matter in this disease and, and really tried to educate the clinical carcinoma patient population. And that hopefully goes out to, to groups of all kinds all over the country, all over the world actually. Um, so they can advocate for themselves in, in treatment options that they otherwise wouldn't have, you know? Yeah, no, that's incredibly important work and thank you for sharing that with us. So when we, when we have these, these disparities that exist, what are we doing for screening? Right, so screening for claims of carcinoma, there's not really a, a single screening test yet. Um, there's obviously a lot of work going on um, in the field to, to try and um, avail ourselves of an easy test. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't exist. Um, but when it does, it will be incredibly important to get that knowledge out to uh, communities all over the world um, and, and make those tests readily available. All right, that's the second part. You can educate people, but you got to get that test to be readily available to them. Um, but that'll be that'll be incredibly important. But from a screening standpoint right now, there's not really uh, a defined screening test for that. And that is one thing that's being worked on here um, in particular, in, in addition to many other places and trying to find genetic changes in the bile that we can sample endoscopically or even hopefully in the blood um, that signal uh, a very, high likelihood that there's a cancer hiding out somewhere uh, and then to be able to go look for it. Um, so we'll see. Dr. Modi, anything else that you wanna share with us that we haven't touched upon? No, I think I, I thank you for the opportunity to talk about a, a, a rare cancer, but um, one that's passionate to a lot of us here at Mayo Clinic and um, uh, we're spending a lot of time working on and um, uh, we do have a, a, a very large NIH grant that's dedicated to these cancers that's um, exploring all sorts of really exciting stuff. And so um, hope to bring a lot more innovation to, to these patients uh, in, the, in the near future. Well, that's tremendous. We've been discussing gallbladder and bile duct cancer with Dr. Kabir Modi, past co-chair of the Hepatobiliary Disease Group at Mayo Clinic Cancer Center. Dr. Modi, thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.